This is They Create Worlds, episode 150, Gottlieb, part two. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Last time, we enjoyed the glory that is Gottlieb in the arcade, taking all of our pennies, nickels, and dimes. But soon, they must ascend to the glory realm, the true coin, the quarter. Well, I'd say the quarter is just a little ways off yet from where we left off. But yes, Gottlieb in the... 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, even into the 1960s, was truly the leading company in pinball in the American arcade. And we talked a little bit about how that happened, how Gottlieb built up his great manufacturing operation, how he had a method of capturing and retaining sales by doing very small limited releases and being able to kind of charge a premium for those and being regarded as the artistic and stylistic and gameplay pinnacle of pinball in comparison to some of the other companies to kind of become the Cadillac of the industry. And of course, we discussed how they revolutionized the entire game of pinball by introducing a little thing called the flipper. We did enjoy that flipper. That's a major invention there, and it really is what propelled pinball from a quasi-gambling machine into a true game of skill. Exactly. It was the beginning of that whole process. And Gottlieb was very important then over the next decade to continuing and enhancing that process as well, which is something that we need to talk about before we move forward. There were really three great Gottlieb innovations to pinball in the post-war period. We already discussed the first, which was the flipper. The second of these came in the middle of the 1950s when, for the first time, pinball became a competitive game, not just a single-player game. Pinball had, for some time at this point, been keeping track of score automatically. That goes all the way back to the 1930s. But pinball was still, at this point, a solitary amusement. You put in your penny, you put in your nickel, you got your balls, usually by this point, kind of standardized at three. You would play and see how well you did, and maybe even get a free game if you were good enough. That was kind of the extent of it. With pinball under attack and diminishing after World War II because of the gambling ties, because of the introduction of other machines, there was a need to revitalize the game. Adding the flipper, making it more of a skill-based game, was absolutely a part of that process. Another part of that process was figuring out other ways to enjoy the game, and there were competitor products that had become very popular in the post-war period that could be looked to for guidance. One of these was the venerable old game of Shuffleboard, which had been around for a long time. It goes back centuries, and it had even been around before in Coin-Op, but in kind of the 1948 period, It suddenly became very popular again in arcades, I think in part because pinball was diminishing. The competitive nature of it was also very popular. Then that was refined further as the bowling boom took hold in the early 1950s into the so-called shuffle alley, which combined elements of shuffleboard with bowling. 
We've talked about shuffle alleys before. We particularly talked about them when we did our episode on Williams because Williams and its competitor uh, United became uh, very big in this field of shuffle alleys. But basically in the shuffle alley, you have a puck that's kind of like a shuffleboard puck and you slide it down the play field and there are contacts in the play field. You don't actually hit the bowling pins, but there are contacts. The bowling pins are up a little. And if you hit those contacts underneath the bowling pins with the puck, then it causes those pins to retract, as in bowling, to simulate them being knocked down. The shuffle alley became a really popular game at the beginning of the 1950s, in part, I think, because bowling was starting to become popular with the advent of automatic pin setters. Before that, when you wanted to bowl or you wanted to have a bowling alley, you actually had to have employees, usually teenagers, out there behind the lanes resetting the pins after every bowl. That could make for a slow and tedious process, but with the automatic pin setter coming in, bowling really became the big recreational pastime uh, for adults in the 1950s. The shuffle alley kind of reflected that in the coin-operated world, and of course, again, didn't have any of these old ties to gambling, and it had that competitive element. Operators were very interested in turning pinball into a competitive game as well, because this was just all the rage at the time, and it could be another way to make it feel like less of a game of chance, I suppose, as well, because you're pitting yourself against the ability of another person rather than it just being you against the machine. The kind of breakthrough that allowed for this to really be possible was the beginning of using reels for scores instead of lights. It used to be that the score, as it would be again once LEDs became a big thing, uh, but it used to be that the score in pinball was tallied by using lights, phosphorescent tubes, whatever, in order to display the numbers of the score. In 1953, Williams, always an innovator in the pinball field, introduced a a game called Army-Navy that replaced the lights with a score reel instead, where the individual numbers run individual reels that would turn as you scored points. There was a lot of resistance to that in terms of regular pinball machines. People really liked the lights, but the thing about that technology was it would make it very easy to put two or three or four sets of scores on the back glass instead of just one, because with the reels and the technology behind that, that would just be much simpler. Gottlieb got the idea to do a multiplayer pinball machine where more than one person would play and you would alternate. They kind of settled on five balls in the end, but you'd put in your dime was what they would usually charge for this rather than the nickel because multiple people were involved. There'd be five balls and you would alternate the balls and actually compete for who would get the top score. They actually first tried this with four-player pinball because why not? The more the merrier. Their four-player pinball, Super Jumbo, didn't really do very well. So in March 1955, they introduced a machine called Duet. In terms of it being a pinball machine, I mean, it's a pretty standard Gottlieb pinball machine of the period. So there's really nothing remarkable about the gameplay, but what was remarkable was the fact that two people could play at once and it would keep track of their individual scores on reels. This was a key moment, almost as big as the flipper, not quite, but almost as big as the flipper, in really bringing pinball back around and making it more popular. 
by 1956, these two-player dime machines are truly starting to dominate. It's propelling Gottlieb even further. Gottlieb also gets into pool tables in this period, which also experience a boom because, again, that's another thing that's competitive. Even though pool has, obviously, a lot of gambling connotations to it, at least it is still a game of skill. So while Gottlieb remains mostly in pinball, they do start doing pool tables as well a little bit in the 50s. And these competitive games that are dime play machines because they're two people are kind of really key into keeping pinball moving forward. The third and final great innovation of this period at Gottlieb was the introduction of the add-a-ball feature. We talked before in our last episode how David Gottlieb became an ardent crusader against games of chance and gambling-style pinball machines and coin-operated amusements as the 1940s and 1950s wore on. Gotta keep that bally person down. (laughs) Exactly. And another element of pinball that was very much seen as gambling and was very much an inhibitor to pinball gaining wider acceptance was this idea of the free game. It's almost ironic because the free game, which had been pioneered in the 1930s, was actually created as a response to the problems of gambling at that time. Rather than have a money payout, because this was a period of time when pinball, which we talked about in our Bally episode, because Bally was really big in this field, this was a period of time when pinball was starting to pay out in a very similar manner to slot machines. Harry Williams came up with the idea of winning a free game instead of winning a payout as a way to try to get around this gambling thing. The problem is, a free game is still something of value. Maybe you're not hitting a jackpot, you know, maybe you're not getting lots of quarters back or lots of dimes or lots of nickels, but we know what the value of a game of pinball is. It's a penny or a nickel or a dime or whatever the machine is charging you to play the game. Therefore, regulators eventually decided that free games were also a form of gambling because those were a thing of measurable value. A lot of places, particularly in Europe, had bans on pinball machines that provided free games because they were considered gambling. Gottlieb, once again, he wants to find a way to provide some kind of prize to the player, some kind of incentive as they keep playing through the game, but it has to be something that isn't measurable in value, and and free game is out. So instead, Wayne Nayans, who's the main engineer at the company now, we talked about him briefly last time, he had been Harry Mabs's kind of technician assistant, and then when Mabs left Gottlieb, he uh, became the main pinball designer, and as of this recording, is still alive today in his early 100s. He came up with the idea of Why don't we make it so that if you get a certain point threshold, you get another ball added to your counter. You get another shot on the pinball table. Gottlieb was not sure about this at first because he was so ardently against the gambling, and this did sound like kind of the free game thing. But when he saw it in action, he realized, no, this is just different enough because there really isn't a value being measured on a single ball. This is just a continuation of the game you're already playing. You're not winning something new. You're just extending the time that you're playing the game you're already on. Gottlieb realized, okay, this is it. This makes sense. So in 1960, this feature was incorporated into a game called Flipper, 
which is, I think we mentioned last time, actually what Gottlieb had wanted to call Humpty Dumpty, the first machine with flippers, but couldn't because there was a trademark at the time. By this time, whatever legal problem there was there, I guess, had been cleared up, so they were able to call this machine Flipper. This was the first machine with that Adaball. And, you know, really, even outside of pinball, this is a critical moment in even the history of our medium, because this is the beginning of the extra life, Jeff, right here in this pinball game Flipper. I got a million points. I get an extra life. I get another ball. I get to go and continue my quest for glory. Exactly. So a lot of the early arcade mechanics in video games, particularly after Space Invaders, were really based on pinball mechanics, and they were based on the pinball mechanics created by Gottlieb. Not that other companies didn't do some of this similar stuff, but if you think about it, the idea that you and a friend insert some coins into a machine, then you use your skill to play this machine and compete against each other, alternating turns to achieve a score on the cabinet. And if you get enough points in a certain amount of time, you get an extra play. This is Space Invaders. Three lives, alternating play between two people, bonus points for extra lives. This is Pac-Man. This is a key innovation that carries over to video games. So even though we're knee-deep in this pinball stuff, it's still incredibly relevant for the way that the video game industry develops a decade or two later. They take a lot of these same kind of gameplay concepts and they just turn it into video. Mm -hmm. A lot of video games and arcade games that we think of in a classic sense are just innovations, refinement, and a pretty clown suit on top of classic (laughs) arcade games. Absolutely. Very true. And, And this is one example of that, which is why I wanted to focus so much on this, because it is relevant to video as well. But even in the context of the times, this is what lays the groundwork for pinball to become legitimate and become relevant. When you put together the flipper, which we talked about last time, with the competitive nature of two-player pinball, and then with the kind of final removal of that gambling incentive, the free play, and its replacement with the Adaball, this is what sets the stage for pinball to become legitimate again. And in the immediate period, it's also very key to the expansion of pinball continuing into the 1960s. Now that they've really cleared up the gambling issue, they start doing heavy lobbying, and Gottlieb in particular starts doing heavy lobbying in European countries to get the game legalized. We talked before that Gottlieb had brought in his son-in-law, Judd Weinberg, to head up international sales at the company. We talked about how he had had some success and how they had built a factory in Ireland to serve the British market, where they were able to make headway. But on the continent, they couldn't do much because pinball was still basically banned because of the gambling connotations. There were much stricter countrywide bans there than even the the regional bans that were in place in the United States. This was a real problem because Gottlieb knew this was a market that they could reach. In the immediate post-war period, the 40s and into the 50s, because America was so involved in rebuilding Western Europe had first liberated Western Europe and then was responsible for helping rebuild Western Europe and was also a major bulwark in Western Europe against Soviet expansion out of the East. This was a period when Americana was very, very popular in Europe. I mean, this is the beginning of the global cultural influence of America that still exists to this day. In this period, I mean, it was particularly popular to kind of emulate that American culture. Pinball, as kind of a symbol of American culture, was something that was 
a pretty easy sell into those export markets, except for the fact that uh, this little problem of it being illegal. Gottlieb really charged Judd Weinberg with trying to get them into that market. And he tried. He went to New York and was working with kind of import-export people there. They weren't getting much headway. And then he ended up getting connected. And I don't have the full details of the story. I wish I did. But he ended up getting connected with a Frenchman that had been a hero during the French Resistance, who was very interested in legitimizing pinball in France. This guy, who was a hero in France, so he had a lot of name recognition, helped with the lobbying. And finally, kind of the breakthrough came in 1961 when two things happened. France finally dropped its restrictions on the import of American pinball machines. And Italy did a partial repeal of its ban. They still kept them illegal in public places, bars, restaurants, shops, etc. But they allowed private clubs to import them and operate them. So this kind of opened the floodgates, and this allowed pinball to start penetrating the European continent as the 1960s went on. This is what really sustained pinball during this period of time. As we said, and as we know, pinball was under attack in the United States. Its influence was being limited. It was slowly being squeezed out in the U.S. It never went away, but it was no longer as mainstream across the entire country. But as the 60s went on, it became more and more mainstream and more and more popular in Europe. Also in Japan, where Gottlieb partnered with Taito, which of course we've talked about before, to import their machines into Japan. But especially in Europe, that's where the volume was. Judd Weinberg was a big part of making sure that Gottlieb was a big player in these international markets. Again, to skip ahead a little bit, because we don't want to get too bogged down in the pinball, we are a video game history podcast, not a pinball podcast. While it's a very fascinating subject, it's one I certainly don't have the same depth of knowledge on and can only get us into trouble if we try to go machine by machine and get too far into the weeds. By the end of the 1960s, Gottlieb is still on top. They're still doing all right. They're still kind of doing the same thing, low production runs, but the prestigious company. They've changed materials a little bit. Flipper was actually the first game where they did all metal cabinets instead of those old wood rail cabinets that we talked about. They also created, at this time, the classic wedge look of a pinball machine. Before that, it was all pretty rectangular. The problem really was, from an operator perspective, that those machines, when they're all kind of straight lines and everything, they'd end up, because operators are putting as many as they can in a place, they'd end up all bunched together and it would be hard to get in there to manipulate them because they'd all be stacked side by side. There needed to be a way to keep space. When Gottlieb did their four players and their two players, they realized, well, okay, as we make the backlass bigger to accommodate more scores... With the backlash being bigger, that naturally forces the cabinets to be further apart from each other. Again, with Flipper and with their new metal design, they incorporated a wedge shape to the backlash because that way the backlash stuck out more than the rest of the cabinet, and therefore there was naturally space between pinball machines. Gottlieb, once again, was driving the industry's perception of what a pinball is, what a pinball looks like, what a pinball should be, and is still, even as they change materials and change design, consider the Cadillac of the industry. But there's a real risk that they're going to start losing the technological edge, and this doesn't become evident all at once. Pinball continues to evolve as the 60s go on, 
a lot of that innovation anymore is not coming from Gottlieb after those three great innovations that they did between 1947 and 1960, the flipper, the two-player, and the Attaball. It's really Williams that's starting to take the technological lead in terms of introducing interesting new ways to play the game. Multi-ball, drop targets, moving targets, all this kind of stuff. Williams doesn't catch them during this period. Gottlieb remains the big company, but it's a sign that maybe they're starting to slip, and I don't necessarily know why. Wayne Nayans was a very good designer. The management was older, but the management was older at a lot of these companies. That wasn't necessarily the thing, but I think they'd just been so good at what they did for so long that they just kind of got into this groove and weren't necessarily able to react to changes as well. They were, in many ways, a very conservative and traditional company. As the 60s give way to the 70s, there's an even bigger problem brewing because, well, two things. First of all, there are some changes that happen at the top of Gottlieb. By 1971, David Gottlieb, he's not that old, but he's older. He was born in 1900, so, I mean, he's getting into his early 70s here. He has some health problems. In 1971, he ends up stepping aside. He remains the chairman of the company, but he decides that he's too ill to continue leading the company. So he gives way to the next generation. Judd Weinberg his son-in-law, who was so important to building the international sales, becomes the new president of the company. And his son, David Gottlieb's son, Alvin, who joined the company in the 40s in marketing and promotions, becomes the new executive vice president of the company. David's younger brother, who's still becoming older, but is younger, Nate remains at the company in charge of sales. But there's a changing of the guard. There's a transition here. That same year, they also leave their facility, their factory that they've been in since the 1940s, and open a brand new fancy factory in North Lake, Illinois, 130,000 square feet with all the latest and greatest in manufacturing. There's a new factory, there's young new blood. You would think that this would be a period of growing to even greater heights. As the early 70s continued, they were continuing to do very well. But that conservative nature, which I think David had instilled in Judd and Alvin as well, and of course, you know, Nate Gottlieb was still there, that conservative streak, I think, blinded them to some of what was happening. First of all, they very much were a pinball company and had no interest in being anything other than a pinball company. As some of the other types of games that gained popularity in the late 60s and early 70s, like the trivia games, like Computer Quiz, or like Sega's Periscope, and the more elaborate audiovisual games like that, or Chicago Coin Speedway, and then video with Pong. As these new types of games came to the forefront in the late 60s and early 70s, Gottlieb didn't get into any of those markets. Gottlieb remained a pinball company. Then, as the technology improved to solid-state, Gottlieb did not get into solid-state pinball right away. They were just stuck in the old ways, even in their brand-new factory, of doing pinball in an electromechanical manner. By the middle of the decade, they are still number one in kind of 1975. 
they are able to ride the advances that are being made in other areas, like pinball becoming legalized and like Bally doing their tie-in with Tommy Movie and with Pinball Wizard and doing the Wizard Cabinet, and this kind of expansion of pinball back into youth culture, which we talked about, they're able to ride that to a couple of really big, successful tables right at the middle of the decade. But it's kind of the last hurrah. In 1975, which again is right in this period when pinball is about to be legalized again, and the Tommy movie is out and and gaining all of this, they have two massive hits. In December of 1975, they do a table called Spirit of 76, which is a celebration of the upcoming bicentennial that moves over 10,000 units, which is remarkable, but not quite as remarkable as it would have been before Wizard uh, had just done the same thing. We've talked about that board before. Absolutely. Then in April 1976, they do another game called Royal Flush, which sells over 12,000 units. That success is fleeting because they're not getting into solid state. And so after that point, they start getting passed. They do finally, at the 1977 AMOA show, show off some of their first solid state tables that are you know, going to really hit the market in 1978. But that's too late. They're already behind. Bally is already cornering that market. Williams is already getting into the market. Within just a couple of years, they end up in third place because they didn't embrace the new technologies and the new licensing and all of the new stuff that was going on fast enough. They drop from first to third very quickly. Now, when you say that, let's put that in terms of, say, percentages to give some sort of context to it. So when they're in first, do they control 60% of the market, 80% of the market? Well, I don't have those kind of market share figures for pinball because I don't study pinball as closely and there wasn't a lot of good reporting in the industry. I don't have really good figures on that except to know that they were on top. However, I do have figures for 1979. This can kind of give you an idea of how far they fell. So in 1979, Bally was the leading company and sold about 80,000 units of all its tables. Then after that came Williams, which sold about 60,000 units of its tables. Then Gottlieb was third with 46,000, almost half, just over half of what Bally was able to ship and way below what Bally and Williams combined were able to ship. They lost a lot of market share in this period because they didn't embrace solid state fast enough. They didn't embrace licensing fast enough. I mean, they did these things. They started doing them. So they went from a first place to what seems to be a sort of distant third. Yeah. In just a few short years, it was dramatic. And that's because they just didn't embrace these new movements fast enough. Unfortunately for them as well, they were also, right as this was starting to play out, they ended up being acquired by Columbia Pictures. Now, was this a hostile takeover? No, it wasn't hostile. They were a closely held company. There was no possibility of being hostily taken over. They weren't public. Basically, the movie industry in this period was also in some crisis. Movie studios were not doing as well as they had. This was kind of on the cusp of the revival, but there had been kind of the falling off of interest in cinema as the studios had stuck to the same old 
tired concepts that they'd been doing for decades and decades, like the big musical spectaculars and all of that, that had really kind of worn away at the movie industry and kind of the new wave of cinema was coming in to kind of write that. People like De Palma and Coppola and Fonda and whatnot were starting to turn this around, but it hadn't really manifested yet necessarily in the box office. Movie studios didn't tend to make a lot of money, and they relied on tax sheltering for a lot of their funding. Here we go into crazy economics again, and I can't say that I am an economic master that can tell you all the ins and outs of tax sheltering myself, but basically what the process of tax sheltering is, is you as a wealthy person have lots of money. Because you have lots of money, the government wants your money to fund the government. Boo! (laughs) Not making any political statements with that, just stating the way the world works. For wealthy people, one of their prime goals with their money is to make sure as much of it stays out of the government's hands as possible. That's been true throughout history. Tax sheltering is a process where you invest your money into a high-risk field, a field that is known for being unstable, for not having predictable returns. Then you can manipulate the books legally, but still kind of manipulate the books to show a loss on that high-risk venture. Because you lost money in that high-risk venture, because it's high-risk, there's incentives to investing in high-risk, because otherwise people wouldn't do it, but it's important, they can take massive deductions on their taxes. This was the method in which movie studios were doing a lot of their funding anymore in this period of time when they were really struggling financially, and Columbia Pictures was doing this even more than the other majors, even more than Fox and Paramount and Warner Brothers. In 1975, the federal government in the United States decided to crack down on this tax sheltering. Now, tax shelters didn't go away. I mean, tax shelters, I'm sure, will always be a thing. But they really cracked down on how tax shelters worked and how you could invest in them and how you could deduct losses from them. This meant that there was going to be a turning away from tax sheltering to fund the motion picture business. For Columbia, this was a real problem because this was really what they were relying on. And so they felt they needed to get into other fields. Columbia was the company that did the Tommy movie. They collaborated with Bally on Wizard. They saw how pinball was starting to become a major thing again, especially again with teenagers, something it hadn't necessarily been for a while. They saw the pinball business as a great way to get back into it, especially since at this period of time, it didn't last long, but at this period of time, it even looked like pinball might become a home entertainment. People were going to start bringing it into the home, and so they also saw it as an expansion into home entertainment as well. They saw a lot of possibility in pinball. Gottlieb at this time was still the big kid, still hanging in there number one, even though they were about to fall dramatically, so they went straight for number one, and they made the Gottlieb family an offer they couldn't refuse. By this time, I probably should have mentioned already, but we'll mention it now, by this time David was gone. David Gottlieb passed away in 1974 after a period of illness. I'm sure the next generation, Judd and Alvin, were very concerned about the future of the company and the viability of the company as things went forward. When a company like Columbia Pictures comes along, and offers you a lot of money, and I mean a lot, a lot of money in this context, 
How much money, Mr. Alex? $47 million. That's 1970s 47 million kids. So that's a pretty penny. Exactly. Which was well above the value of Gottlieb shares. Gottlieb was privately held, so there wasn't a stock market valuation of the shares in the company. But it was still well above what was considered to be kind of the value of the stock at the time. They were overpaying to get into the business. And so there was no way that they could say no to that, really. In December of 1976, Gottlieb becomes a wholly owned subsidiary of Columbia Pictures. At first, this didn't mean much of a change. Columbia wasn't there to mess with something that they saw as already successful. Judd Weinberg and Alvin Gottlieb retained their executive positions. The company was doing very well in 1978 even still. The company, now that it's part of a publicly traded company, we actually get some sales figures. In 1978, Gottlieb had $52 million in sales and profits of $12 million, which was actually a pretty good chunk of Columbia's success. I mean, it wasn't nearly all of it, but Columbia in 1978 had about $69 million in total revenues. They actually had a better year than they had had in a long time, thanks to a little Spielberg movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was a big hit for them. They were $12 million of that. Even though pinball is a much smaller business than the movie business, they were almost a fifth of Columbia's profits in that fiscal year. At first, everybody was happy, and it was a great partnership. But then that fall started that I talked about. They didn't get into solid state fast enough. They had a few machines that sold really well. They did a Close Encounters machine, for instance, that sold 10,000 units. They did a Charlie's Angels machine. They were getting into this kind of licensing. They were getting into solid state, but they just didn't have as many hits as the other guys. This was one of the last big periods for pinball right before Space Invaders hit. And so doing 10,000 would have been impressive a couple of years before. But now Bally was doing machines that did 20,000 units. Just as another point of comparison, between 1977 and 1978, Gottlieb had three machines that sold over 10,000 units. Again, in 1965, that would have been amazing. Bally had eight, including that eight-ball machine, which we talked about on our Bally episode, that did 20,000. Williams was coming on strong, too, which we mentioned in our Williams episode. We talked about their record-breaking machines that they had at the end of this period, machines that Steve Ritchie and Eugene Jarvis worked on that were massive hits, 15,000, 20,000, topping the charts for months and months. Gottlieb just didn't have that kind of pull anymore. So they slipped in pinball. They refused almost entirely to get into video. In the mid-70s, that made sense. Even though they were the only one of the major companies that didn't explore it at all, you know, Bally got in through Midway, Williams and Chicago Coin released uh, Ball and Paddle games. It kind of made sense then because that kind of went up and went down, and then Pinball went back up again, so they could kind of pat themselves on the back and say, well, it's a good thing we never got into that silly video thing with those little balls bouncing back and forth between those paddles. Then Space Invaders hits, and Space Invaders is kind of a big deal. And then Pinball declines. So not only has Gottlieb fallen to third place in Pinball, but they fall into third place in a Pinball market that's shrinking. 
the pie is smaller. They don't have as much of that pie. The amount of available money and capital is shrinking, and the inflationary costs are going up, up, up. Right. I mean, being number three in pinball in the 60s, you could do better, but it it wasn't necessarily going to kill you. But being number three in pinball in this period of time when video has basically driven pinball out of the market, that's just the disaster. They need to get into video, but they're just not doing it. Columbia is really not happy about this. They bought this company to be their entree into new forms of entertainment, and nothing new (laughs) is happening. They release a new solid-state system, the System 80, for their pinballs in 1980. That's why it's called System 80. They do a Spider-Man license, but their tables don't sell very well. Spider-Man only sells 7,600 units. The market is shrinking. Gottlieb is looking at having some of its first losses under the uh, Columbia regime. So Columbia finally reevaluates the business, and in July 1980, they force Judd Weinberg out. They don't fire him. He moves up to be a consultant with the movie studio. And while I don't know this for certain because I don't have any inside sources, it's pretty clear that what this really was was a forcing out of Judd because they felt that a change needed to be made to address this changing coin-op market that Gottlieb is no longer doing very well in. So they replace him with an individual named Robert Bloom. Robert Bloom was a finance guy. How many times have we seen this? A company is kind of slipping. They're not doing so well. They've got a parent company or venture capitalists or some other person holding the purse strings, some other entity holding the purse strings that is not happy with the way things are going. And so you get rid of the guy that's been running the company forever and you bring in the finance guy to try to straighten things out. I think from a historical standpoint, it has to my knowledge, never worked. And it always seemed to lead to (laughs) an acceleration of the decline they're trying to stop. Sometimes, sometimes. Now, Bob Bloom did have a little bit of history with the company, but only a little. He had joined the company in 1977 as the VP of Finance. He was recognized even by Judd Weinberg. Now, you say nice things about your executives, of course, to the public because you want the public to have confidence in your executives. I wish I had more inside sources from Gottlieb in this period, but I don't. Judd Weinberg publicly praised him as somebody who really learned the business very well, who was very interested in the business and very interested in learning the business, and had become a real asset in terms of building business relationships with distributors motivating people to do good work. Even Judd Weinberg, you know, before he left, was praising him as somebody who was able to get things done. So, yeah, he was the finance guy, and that's not a good look. But he also apparently had some skills as well, and he was actually named senior v- a senior VP of the company in early 1980, before he ended up replacing Judd Weinberg as head of the company. It was going to basically be Bloom's job to write the ship. To his credit, Bloom started making some very important changes at the company in order to meet this new period. Under Weinberg and Alvin Gottlieb, who also ends up leaving in 1981, so the family's entirely out, 
Nate Gottlieb actually died back in 1979. He was still head of sales at the company when he died. The family's entirely out of the business now. But it is true that the family was not moving into video because they were a pinball company and they saw themselves as pinball people. Their first moves into the business were very tentative. They just licensed a couple of Japanese games that were, quite frankly, not very good. A tank game called No Man's Land from Universal and a game from Sigma Enterprises called New York, New York that was a shoot-em-up kind of in the vein of Galaxian. These were tertiary products from tertiary companies, clones of clones of better games. They were not hits. Meanwhile, you have Williams doing Defender, humongous hit. You have Stern, the new pinball player on the block, doing Berserk, major hit. And of course, you have Bally through its Midway subsidiary, even though they haven't really done any interesting original games. You may have heard of a couple of their imports, Space Invaders and Pac-Man. The whole pinball industry has pivoted full speed into video and had massive hits. Here's Gottlieb, and all they've done is bring out two tertiary games from tertiary Japanese companies that just sink in the marketplace. But to Bloom's credit, he realizes this, and he starts making changes at the company. He brings in a new vice president of engineering named Ron Waxman, who came actually from outside the industry. He was heavily involved in everything from electronic organs to missile defense systems. He'd been involved in electronics for a long time. He knew solid state. And he was brought in to head all of engineering in May of 1981. But he also had the skills that would be particularly useful for helping getting video games more off the ground. They also even before Waxman was hired, in March of 1981, they created a new video game division, a separate division of the company specifically devoted to video games. They brought in an individual named Howard Rubin to run it. Rubin was a coin man going way back. He is someone I've talked to. He was a coin man. He started in distribution. He went to work for Betson, a major East Coast distributor, in 1967. Spent a lot of years working for distributors, and then when Atari was expanding its sales staff in the middle of the 1970s, they hired him to be a regional sales manager in 1976. Then he became kind of a manager of special projects. So he knew the coin industry in and out. He had been at Atari, which was at the forefront of video games. He understood that market. He'd also marketed pinballs when Atari had their pinball division. He was involved with that as well. So he knew pinball, he knew coin-op, he knew video games, and he was kind of ready to take the next step in his career. So they brought him in to be the president of that. At the same time, they kind of rejiggered the pinball side of things as well to try to get a better traction in that area. And at the same time they brought in Ruben, they promoted from within an individual named Gilbert Pollock to be the new vice president of product design with really an emphasis on the pinball side of the business, not the video game side of the business. Gilbert Pollock, he'd been hired in to be in charge of personnel. He didn't come out of the game design side of things. From there, he was put in charge of operations. He became VP of operations and did a good job there. And it turned out kind of had a knack for 
pinball and understanding pinball and understanding pinball design. Now, he was not a designer himself. It's not like he was the one that was going to be going in there and actually making these great games. But they discovered that he was actually one of these guys that had a good feel for what would work in a pinball game. They elevated him to VP of product design to try to get the pinball side of things back on track. Bloom brings in Howard Rubin to take control of the new video game division and get that moving in the right direction, and is really trying to make a go of turning things around here. They have a little bit of success, at least on the pinball side. Gilbert Pollock is very quickly moved from VP of product development to actually being in charge of the entire pinball division. Under his watch, they finally have themselves a couple of hits again for the first time. Now, remember, this is in a much smaller market because pinball is just falling apart on top of falling apart on top of falling apart. Under Pollock's watch, they do a game called Black Hole that has this interesting multi-level play field But instead of having the main level and an upper level of the playfield, which is what you normally see in a multi-level playfield game, they have this recessed playfield underneath the main playfield. They had a lot of good animation and design and really cool touches in it that really drew players. It was a service nightmare because it had this lower playfield with these spinning mechanics and whatnot, and so it was really hard to service. But it was kind of a really interesting game, and that sold 9,700 units after its release in late 1981. Now, I know we were just talking moments ago about these games selling 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, but in the new reality of video, that was actually a very good pinball total, and that game was top of the charts for several months before it finally started to fade. I mean, that was kind of the biggest thing Gottlieb had done in a long time, and Pollock was kind of the one that helped shepherd that over the finish line. Again, it's not like he was designing it, but he was in charge of the division when they were starting to have some of these hits again. Unfortunately, video took a little longer to get together. That wasn't really Howard Rubin's fault. It wasn't Ron Waxman's fault. It wasn't any of these people's fault. It takes time to bring that talent in, and they were already behind the curve. Video games are hard. (laughs) It's a different level of complexity to pinball. I can make pinball with electromechanical stuff and go, but on top of that, if I'm doing a video game of pinball, I have to come up with not just the infrastructure for it, but the coding. Debug that code, (laughs) and there's different electronics involved. There's different skill sets involved. It's not easy. And just coming up with a design can be very hard. So they hire a couple of designers and artists internally and start working on stuff. But they just keep running into problems. There's a superhero game that they have under development. It's kind of Superman-like, but they never get a Superman license. They call it Protector at first, then they call it Argus. They give it all of these names, and they're trying to develop it. And it just doesn't go anywhere, and it's never released. They also do a pinball video game hybrid called Caveman, where... Doing well in the pinball would unlock video sequences that you would do as well. And this was something that was really championed by Gilbert Pollock specifically. He really felt that if they were going to keep the pinball business viable, that they needed to try to tap into the video business as part of the pinball business. 
Gilbert Pollock was a pinball guy through and through. He didn't want to see the pinball side of the company fail, and he was in charge of that division, so of course he wouldn't. So he really pushed for this idea. Howard Rubin was entirely against it. He didn't think it played well, he thought the integration was sloppy, and he really came down hard saying they shouldn't release it. These two division heads, head of video and head of pinball, are giving their opinions to Bloom, the president of the company. Bloom isn't sure what to do, so then he asks the head of sales, C. Marshall Karras, or Karras, C-A-R-A-S, I'm not sure how he pronounced it, to weigh in, and he asks him what they should do, since he's the sales guy. What do you think is going to work in the market? As Ruben tells the story, Karras refused to give an answer. He didn't want to get in the middle of it at all. So Bloom fired him right then and there in the meeting. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, because he wouldn't give an answer. (laughs) Of course, uh, his leaving the company was announced in the trades, and it was announced that he had left to pursue other interests. So that's very consistent with Ruben's version of events, that he was just fired, because people that go to pursue other interests usually don't go to pursue other interests voluntarily. It's very much code at that level of executives for he was fired. Yes. Bloom does decide to release it. He backs Pollock, but the game does play poorly. Ruben's correct about that. It doesn't do well at all. That's kind of the end of this idea of the company trying to meld (laughs) these two disparate markets together. From then on, Gottlieb's pinball remains its pinball, and Pollock's running that. It's video remains its video, and Ruben's running that. It very much reminds me of the Pac-Man pinball hybrid thing. Yes, it's a similar idea. Exactly. I mean, there have been a few attempts to do it, and in general, it just doesn't work well. There's that thing. Then they've got this protector game going that is just going nowhere. And so then Bloom finally decides, okay, we got to get something going here. And so he brings in Tim Skelly in summer 1981 as an independent contractor to create a game for them. He feels they need something. Skelly got his start with Cinematronics, where he created some very noteworthy vector graphics video games, such as Warrior and Ripoff and Armor Attack and Star Castle. He had left Cinematronics to go to Sega to get Sega jump-started in vector games. But then Cinematronics sued. Their suit really didn't have any merit. They sued, claiming that, you know, they had the vector patents and theft of trade secrets, and they were trying to enjoin Skelly from being able to do anything for Sega. Even though the suit really long-term didn't have any merit, Sega was kind of like, okay, we don't want to fight. This just isn't going to work out. And so they part ways with Skelly. So with Skelly available and having a pedigree and being known in the industry, Bloom and Rubin and company bring him in to create a video game for Gottlieb as an independent contractor because they need to get something on the market. Things are not working out for them. He's kicking around an idea for a game, and he thought it would be interesting. There's so many shooting games going on at this time. Your Galaxians and your Defenders and your Scrambles and all of this, where you're shooting things with projectiles. And he thought to himself, what if the player were the projectile? That was kind of his starting point. What if instead of the player shooting projectiles, the player is the projectile? He started working on a concept that was originally called Ramit, where the player collides with other things to progress. And he kind of comes up with this idea that there'll be this self-contained space. There would be these things floating around in this space, and you, the player, would have to ram these things and knock them into the walls in order to defeat them. 
then as he's trying to theme this game, trying to figure out, okay, well, what would make sense for just a bunch of things floating around and colliding with each other? He decided subatomic particles. Subatomic particles are floating around all the time and colliding with each other and doing crazy things. So he's like, okay, well, we'll have subatomic particles, so we'll have it in a reactor. That's what the final game was. The final game was called Reactor. Basically, you're in this nuclear reactor. There's this big nuclear reaction going on in the middle. You're floating around around the edges, and these particles are floating around around the edges, and you have to knock them into the walls to destroy them. If you knock yourself into the wall, you'll also be destroyed. You had a couple of buttons, so there was a trackball to control your particle floating around, and then you had a couple of buttons that you could press. Uh, There was an energy button that if you pressed it right when you rammed something, they'd shoot further out. You'd push them even further away. You would go around trying to ram things into walls, and then you have this reaction, this nuclear reaction in the middle that's getting bigger and bigger as the game goes on, which is limiting the play field, limiting the room you have to maneuver. The reactor itself is harmless. It won't kill you, but... It limits your ability to maneuver around the playfield. So there are these cooling rods in the walls in a couple of places. If you can knock these particles into these cooling rods and hit all the cooling rods, it'll shrink the nuclear reaction down to a small area again, and then it'll slowly start to expand again. So those are kind of the basic gameplay mechanics. Not necessarily a bad idea in concept, But in execution, it just didn't work very well. It was complicated and finicky, and it disoriented players, and they didn't really have an idea of what they were supposed to be doing. It was kind of looking like it was not going to be a a good game. Howard Rubin decided that they were not going to release this thing. But other things, unfortunately, were afoot, because just as Columbia had decided that they needed to diversify themselves. Another company out there by the name of Coca-Cola decided in this time period that they needed to diversify into other fields as well. As they were looking at options, some consultant or somebody or another suggested that maybe they should buy a movie studio. Because now movie studios are big again. Columbia was looking to buy a pinball company because the movie studios weren't doing well, but now the age of the blockbuster has started. We've had Star Wars, and we've had Raiders of the Lost Ark. We've had these big blockbuster movies, and cinema's back, baby. Coca-Cola decides that this would be a great time to buy a movie studio, and it just so happens that the only movie studio that is not controlled by a larger, bigger entity that is still an independent at this time, is Columbia Pictures. (laughs) So Coca-Cola in 1982 buys Columbia. So now Gottlieb is a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a soft drink company. Conglomeration is just weird. (laughs) Exactly. But at the time Reactor was getting near release, Columbia was in the negotiations with Coca-Cola to get bought. One of the things that they were really trying to sell Coca-Cola on is that, oh yeah, and we're getting into video games and we're just about to release our first video game, our first internally developed video game. As I said, they'd done the Japanese licenses. According to Rubin, Columbia very rarely interfered with the business during this period of time. They normally just let Gottlieb do its own thing. But in this instance, they put their foot down and said, we have told Coca-Cola we are going to have a video game. So we are going to have a video game. Is that understood? Yeah, I'm looking at a little bit of gameplay of this thing. It is 
interesting. There's a lot of visual noise. Yeah. Just looking at it, I can see where these cooling rods are. I can see the central nuclear reactor. There's all this other stuff going around. I don't even know where the player is. There's just things happening, and I'm not sure where the player (laughs) is and how they're even directing the flow of play. It is weird. Exactly. In in a normal world, in, in a usual world, it would have followed the same fate as as the other unreleased Gottlieb game from this period, Protector slash Argus, and not have made it to market. But Columbia insisted, so the game was released in 1982. It did not do well. To recap, Columbia Pictures had brought in Bloom, had removed Weinberg and brought in Bloom, because they thought he was the person that might be able to turn things around and get them jump-started. By the end of 1981, even before Reactor came out, it became clear that they still weren't getting anywhere in video. They were still having problems. In December of 1981, Columbia makes another change. Robert Bloom is out, and a gentleman by the name of Boyd Brown is in. Boyd Brown for the first time, was somebody that was not a Gottlieb insider and had not come out of the pinball industry. It's very clear that they want to make a break and a change here. I mean, Bloom hadn't been with Gottlieb for long. He'd only been there since 77, but he had been there. He had been involved in the pinball business. This time, they're bringing in a guy that came out of a completely different business. Boyd Brown was a Mattel veteran. He got his start at Mattel back in the 1950s in charge of security, of all things. But Mattel was a startup, and so he ended up performing a lot of different jobs. He got more involved on the product side as time went on. He was involved with electronics. He kind of understood that side of the market. He'd also done stints at General Mills and Nabisco, other big companies with big manufacturing operations. So this is a guy that understood manufacturing, that understood operations, but then who also understood product and who understood electronic product. Again, I don't have insider stories on this, but it's pretty clear that Boyd Brown was brought in because they thought, this is the guy that's finally going to get us maybe into video games and finally maybe get us into the home. Because part of the reason Columbia had also bought Gottlieb is that they were hoping to expand Gottlieb into home entertainment. But then the home pinball thing fell apart overnight, and so that never happened. But then, you know, electronic games, electronic handhelds first, and then the programmables, you know, those were big in the home, and Boyd Brown had experience with some of that. So clearly they brought in Brown because they were like, this is going to finally be the guy that gets us into video and gets us into the home, which had always been what Columbia wanted. Well, at least getting into the home was what they always wanted. Video, obviously, is a little bit newer, but clearly these are the priorities, and Boyd Brown is going to be the guy to lead them there. At least that's their hope. They got bought out by Coca-Cola, and Coca-Cola is already in your body, so now we just need to get you in your home. Brown came in right before the Coca-Cola buyout. But yes, they are really moving in those directions. So they have their second leadership change in just over a year. That is not a good sign. We have seen this before with other companies, and it just leads to chaos. We saw this with Atari, where they started doing rapid-fire changing of the guard. People couldn't figure out what the heck is going on before they go, ah, you're gone. (laughs) Right. But in this case, Ruben is still there in charge of video. Pollock is still looking after the pinball. And they've actually got a pretty stable team. So in this case, things kind of go okay. 
the reactor game isn't that great. But after that, there's other stuff brewing because they have been bringing in new people. They have been bringing in programmers, artists, and engineers. They're finally starting to make some headway. That, of course, leads to the single one and only reason that anyone who's interested in video games specifically remembers Gottlieb. That is their one true video hit, Qbert. Good old Qbert. We have seen Qbert before. It's come up, I think, a few times off and on. You have this wonderful little guy who bounces on a cube. He dies and says censored words. <laughs> right. Qbert is interesting because it's really the creation of a lot of different people that contributed to this final product. Very rarely does design by committee ever yield anything. In this case, it actually did because it was less design by committee and more people feeding off of each other to end up with something great. The whole process starts with an artist by the name of Jeff Lee, who had been brought into the company. Jeff Lee was a huge fan of M.C. Escher, the Dutch artist famous for his optical illusions where you have these multi-planar rooms and you have stairways going off in every different direction, upside down and to the side, etc., using geometric shapes in a way that makes them kind of stand out in kind of 3D ways and all of this. Think very much sort of like the infinite staircase that always goes up, or the table that has three legs, so on and so forth. Stuff that from a 2D drawing you can do, but when you start looking at it and really thinking about it, it's impossible to exist in a 3D space. Jeff was experimenting on an Apple II as, as he was doing stuff with computer graphics, with these Escher-like pseudo-three-dimensional cubes and different patterns of these cubes. One of the programmers, one of the new programmers in the video game division, named Khan Yubamoto, saw him fiddling around with these and was like, oh, that's cool. I'll see if I can implement this on our arcade hardware system. Yabamoto starts fiddling around with these cubes on the arcade hardware. Very soon after that, he's taken off of that project and put on another project, which we'll get to later. But he had this kind of basic cube thing going. Then another programmer by the name of Warren Davis saw that and thought, well, that's kind of neat. I think this could be the backdrop for something. He took these cubes and he decided to play around with them in a pyramidal shape, specifically. The reason that he wanted to do a pyramid is because he's kind of learning how programming these video game things work. He's a very accomplished programmer. He has a master's degree. He'd worked at Bell Labs. He'd done speech recognition work. He was a very good programmer, but he hadn't really done this whole video game thing before. He was trying to figure out how this all worked, and he came up with the idea of, of putting these in a pyramid shape, mostly because... When you have a pyramid, there's kind of a choice of two directions for an object to bounce. This would be a good kind of platform for him to experiment with some bouncing balls and with gravity and just different physics programming that he wanted to learn how to do better. He kind of came up with this idea that there'd be balls bouncing around and that there'd be a character hopping from cube to cube to avoid them. That was kind of the starting point. Then he needed a character. So he went back to Lee again. 
and was like, you know, I'm fooling around with this game and it's going to be a character game. I mean, he knew Pac-Man. Everyone knew Pac-Man. This was a period of time when character games were in. Space games were still there, but they were starting to fall back and the Pac-Mans and the Donkey Kongs of the world were starting to take over character-based games, cutesy, cartoony games. So he came to Jeff and he was like, you know, I'm fooling around with this pyramid and, you know, I want something hopping around it. Do you have any ideas? Jeff Lee had been dueling characters. So he pulled out one and he was like, uh, how about this one? And it was this character, you know, this round character with a giant nose. The idea that Jeff Lee kind of had is that the character would shoot projectiles out of the nose. That's why he made the nose so big. But it was just this cute little original character, maybe something that could shoot. Davis really liked it. And so he was like, yeah, we'll put that in the game. They've got this character in the game. He's hopping around. Maybe he'll shoot stuff. Maybe he won't. He's avoiding bouncing balls. But at that point, he's kind of stuck because he's got these physics implemented and all of that. But there's no game there. Hopping around, avoiding balls gets old. You don't have an end state. Exactly. At this point, it's actually the VP of engineering himself, Ron Waxman, that comes to the rescue. Waxman was known for wandering around and keeping a close eye, an interested eye, not like I don't think, you know, was was spying, but just an interested eye on what was going on in the department. Something he was kind of infamous for doing is he would kind of quietly sneak up behind a person working on something and just kind of sit behind them and watch and the person wouldn't necessarily even realize he was there. Waxman's doing this one day while Davis is playing around with this prototype of his. Suddenly, Waxman just says out of the blue, what if the cubes change color when he lands on them? Mm. There it was. <laughs> we start at color A, get all the colors to color B, you win the level. Exactly. Now there's a challenge to overcome. You're not just avoiding things. There's a challenge. Just like Pac-Man, you know, if you were just running around avoiding ghosts, that wouldn't be much of a game. You have to clear the maze. Hubert draws, in, in a sense, uh, fairly heavily from Pac-Man. So that's one of the influences on Davis. I mean, it's not a maze game in the same sense, but you're having to cover the entire play field to achieve something. In Pac-Man, it's eating the pellets. In Hubert, it's changing all the cubes. You know, he decides to have an enemy that'll chase him. That's Coily the Snake that will follow him around. So that's similar to Pac-Man as well. And then they kind of got into a conundrum then, because you've got the snake chasing him, but, you know, the pyramid's kind of a limited play field, so it can become hard to avoid an enemy like that in such a small constrained space. So how do you do that? And they came up with the idea of having the floating discs, that if you go off the side, the floating disc will catch you and bring you back up onto the play field. Then the mechanic became Coil is chasing you, so you lure Coily to your doom by positioning yourself in such a way that he chases you and falls off, but you land on this disc that brings you back up onto the playfield. At first, it was even going to be even more complicated than that. There were going to be different planes because you've got this pseudo 3D space. There were going to be a couple of enemies that would only be able to harm you if they were on the same plane as you were on the playfield. That's where Wrongway and Ugg, the other major protagonists, came from, and that's why Wrongway was named Wrongway, because the idea is that you would shift planes to avoid these two enemies, and one could hit you on one plane and the other could hit you on the other plane. That ended up being way too complicated. It was too disorienting to the player. It was too much complexity in the game, so they dropped that. 
but they kept Wrong Way and Ugg in. So you have Coily chasing you, you have the other enemies that are changing the cubes back, trying to change your cubes back to the other color, and meanwhile you're hopping around happily trying to change all the cubes to the same color. Just like Pac-Man, it's just a one joystick control. All you're doing is moving the joystick to hop around, so it's got intuitive controls, it's got an interesting concept, and it's got a cute character. And so really, this is the kind of thing that's big right now. They even get a little of their pinball into it because since they are a pinball company, they have all those fun electromechanical devices in the shop. And so they decide to put a pinball thwacker in the cabinet. So when you fall off, there's this big thonk. I don't know if you've ever played it on the actual arcade machine. I've only played it on NES ports and emulation. I've never actually played an actual physical Qbert arcade machine. Yeah, so there's this great sound effect when things fall off the pyramid created by this actual real thwacking device. So it's, it's not electronic sound. It's a real <laughs> mechanical device that gives this big thwonk, which just provides another satisfying and interesting dimension. And that wouldn't have been done at a place that wasn't deeply steeped in pinball like Gottlieb was. Hey, Qbert even becomes its own Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Qbert is introduced at the uh, AMOA show in November of 1982. It really doesn't get a wide release until 1983. I mean, it starts trickling out in 82, but it really doesn't get to arcades in a big way until 1983. It's a big hit. It's got simple but engaging gameplay, cute character, interesting concept. It ends up being too easy, quite frankly. It had been much harder in development, and there were complaints about it being too hard. So Davis dialed back the difficulty, and by the time it got to arcades, it was too easy, and people could play for hours on a single quarter when they got really good at it, which isn't a good thing for a coin-op company. It's a big hit. They sell upwards of 20,000 cabinets. As many as 25,000, perhaps, is, is one figure that gets bandied about. It was never the most popular game on the charts. It was never number one. But it was a consistent top five, top ten money earner for months and months in 1983 at a time when the arcade coin-op industry in general, we may recall from some of our other chapters, was starting to collapse a little bit. It did very, very well in the context of the time it was released, and it was kind of the next big cute character. People were looking for the next cute character after Pac-Man, so they were able to do massive licensing deals all over the place. And then it did uh, become part of the Saturday Supercade, which was an anthology series that ran for two seasons in 1983 and 1984 that mixed various popular characters in individual shorts as part of longer episodes. Donkey Kong was another character that was part of that. Pitfall was part of that. A few others as well. The animation industry kind of got into it right as it was going cold. I mean, the Pac-Man cartoon was in 1982. When that was big, then other companies were looking to do video game cartoons, and so Supercade came about. But in fact, they were getting in at a time when Coin-Op was starting to fall apart, and so that wasn't sustained, and so that Hubert cartoon isn't exactly remembered as a classic today. But it's a testament to how well the game and the character did in the arcade. Well, excuse me, princess, that it didn't reach your <laughs> high expectation of video game adaptations into cartoons. I see what you did there. I wish I didn't. Qbert himself, by the way, the name was again a design by committee. They were trying to figure out a name for this cute character. At first, they thought they would just name it after the gibberish that he spouts. David Thiel was the sound designer that was behind that. They put a chip in 
sound chips weren't that great at that time. But Thiel, who was a very brilliant sound designer, realized that if you uh, did particularly interesting things to the sound chip, you could make something that almost sounded like an alien language, and that that would be a much more effective use of a sound chip than trying to get it to do actual speech, which in these days, just because of memory limitations, would often be very garbled. They have this alien language that he does, and at first they thought it would be cute to name the game after that, and the phrasing, I don't have it in front of me and I don't care to look it up, of the at sign and the pound sign and the exclamation point and that string of gibberish, which can also, yes, be interpreted as censoring curse words, as you alluded to earlier. They realized, while that was cute and they still wanted to use that concept, they couldn't really name the game that, because you need a pronounceable name for a game. You can't say, hey, I was just at the arcade and I played this great new game. You should try it. Oh, what is it? Oh, it's called... It's called hashtag explanation point (laughs) at sign meow. Yeah. So they were like, okay, well, we can't name the game that. So we do need to give the character in the game a name. A lot of people suggested different names. Warren Davis made the final selection and somebody had chosen the name Hubert, had suggested the name Hubert. He kind of liked the name Hubert, but he wasn't completely on board with it. But then he realized this is a game taking place on cubes. So if I combine cubes and Hubert, I get Cubert. That's how the name was born. A little alliteration there. Exactly. Cubert's a big hit. Gottlieb is doing great guns. And it looks like things might actually go pretty well here. In fact, the company is so happy with the way things are going that in July of 1983, they changed their name to Milestar Electronics. Why? Why indeed. I believe that the reason, and again, I don't have as as much insider information here as I would like, but I believe the reason is, you know, at this point... Columbia Pictures and Coca-Cola, as we've said, are really big on getting Gottlieb fully into this video game thing, fully into this electronic entertainment industry, fully into high technology. Gottlieb is a pinball company. D. Gottlieb and Company was the name in pinball for decades. Even as it slipped a little from its top spot in the 70s and early 80s, it was still one of the names in pinball. That's not a name that promotes the idea of high-technology, electronic entertainment in the home, all of these ambitions that Columbia and Coca-Cola have for the company. They decide they need a new name. Now, why Milestar? I don't know. That sounds very much like the kind of thing that's marketing by committee, and it's Miles spelled M-Y-L-S-T-A-R, but it's pronounced Milestar. Star, I guess, connotes the idea of being a star, being on the rise. Mile, I have no idea where that comes from. It's really kind of silly. And then it's Milestar Electronics. They put that electronics on it because that is them pushing the emphasis that this is going to be an electronic entertainment company. They're not getting out of pinball. The pinballs will continue to be marketed under the Gottlieb name because that's an established name. But the video game business, the home electronic entertainment business, all of this stuff they want to do, that is now Milestar. You would think they would know better. You have very simple names. With the parent companies, Coca-Cola, <laughs> Columbia, Gottlieb, two to three syllable names, one name, as opposed to Milestar Electronics. Considering I don't even have any idea of recalling seeing anything by this company, I'm going to go with 
that was a bad idea. They might have been better off with just calling it Columbia Presents Milestar Electronics. <laughs> well, I mean, part of the reason you haven't heard about it is, uh, you know, is we're about to get to a little thing called the crash happens and everything falls apart. Milestar didn't exist for very long as a result, but yes, in the middle of 1983, they changed the name to Milestar Electronics. Obviously, the name was not popular around the shop. A lot of the employees started joking that they worked for Rat Slime, which is basically Millstar spelled backwards, can be pronounced Rat Slime. <laughs> Millstar presents Rat Slime as your new mascot for video games, able to save you by jumping on cubes. Even though the name is silly, it is indicative of the ambition that Columbia and Coca-Cola do have for this company, even if the name is misplaced. Unfortunately, things just don't quite work out. The industry is falling apart, and they never quite replicate that Qbert experience again. Their next kind of major release, which was being created at around the same time as Qbert, was a game called Mad Planets. This is the game that Yabamoto was taken off of Qbert to go work on. Qbert was their entry into the cutesy world of character games like Pac-Man one of the main paradigms of the time. Mad Planets was going to be their entree into the still popular, even after the uh, character games, world of space shooting games. It's a strange concept, and I think in part it's a strange concept because nobody really kind of had an idea what they wanted to do, and as Yabamoto himself put it, the concept came together at the last minute. The genesis of the idea was that the hardware engineer on the game, Jun Yum, had created a fancy new hardware system that they were going to use for this space game, and he wanted to show off the power of the system, and his idea for how to do that was to have planets and then to have satellites, moons, orbiting around these planets, just to show how many objects could be moving kind of independently of each other at any given time. Somehow, they got from there to the idea that the planets themselves would be the enemies that you're having to deal with. It's kind of a combination of asteroids and Defender. It, it takes place in a playfield that's very similar to asteroids, where instead of asteroids, you have these planets with these satellites rotating around them that are flying all around the screen, and you have to shoot those to pieces. <laughs> I mean, not to pieces. They don't break apart like the asteroids and asteroids, but these are the objects that you're contending with. Then there are also astronauts floating in space, and you have to zoom around and rescue those astronauts for points as well. So it's kind of an Asteroids meets Defender thing, but it's another one of these games that's just there's too much going on on the screen. It's too busy. All of these rotating planets with rotating satellites, it just doesn't land well with players. It's not a hit. <laughs> I'm looking at a little bit of gameplay of this thing. I like it better than Reactor, personally. I can actually tell what's going on, and it kind of makes me want to giggle and laugh a little bit as I see these planets have their own little personalities, and they start chasing after the spaceship, and it's almost like, you shot me, I'm angry now, and so the color changes a little bit. They lose more and more moons, and then they're chasing after the planet. You got the little space guys who you're trying to rescue, which just look like little stick figures, barely. It's weird, but it's kind of fun and interesting. I'd be more inclined to put my quarter in to this than Reactor. 
Yes, well, players weren't inclined to put their quarters into either one, and <laughs> Mad Planets did not end up doing that well. But the other area that they were trying to move into, and we talked about this aspect of the company when we did our episode on this whole thing, is that they try to get into the Laserdisc business. We have to recall that this is the period when the arcade is in decline, sales are in decline, factory sales have ground to a halt. Certain individual games, like Qbert and like Atari's Pole Position, the racing game, are doing well, but the majority of games are just hitting a wall, and the industry revenues are beginning to fall apart as arcades go out of business. Laserdisc was seen as the way to turn this around because of the incredibly amazing graphics. Dragon's Lair, which we, of course, talked about, was the leader in this. But Dragon's Lair was very limited in gameplay, as we also discussed. It was a cartoon where you occasionally waggled a joystick to choose your own adventure. It wasn't much of a game. The other kind of paradigm in Laserdisc games, which had been started by Sega's Astron Belt, was the idea that you use traditional gameplay and sprite-based graphics for the majority of your game elements, and then overlay that on top of a Laserdisc movie background. So that there's more gameplay than there is in Dragon's Lair, but you still get some incredible graphical fidelity from the Laserdisc video footage. That's the route that Gottlieb takes with a game that actually started out as a prototype for something called Armada. Basically, Ron Waxman charged a programmer named Dave Pfeiffer to fiddle around with a Pioneer Laserdisc player that they had, presumably they getting involved in this because they knew about the Laserdisc games coming, and to make a game out of it. And so he created a prototype using airplane and car footage that was already in existence and created this demo and impressed everybody so much that they actually decided to work on a game and they decided to make it a jet fighter game. They partnered with an individual by the name of Clay Lacey, who's a very famous test pilot and air racer who had also recently made a name for himself in filming airplane scenes for movies. He had done footage for a recent Clint Eastwood movie called Firefox, and he had these custom cameras in the belly of a plane of his that allowed him to shoot flight footage that looked very good and, and simulated what it was like actually flying around in an actual jet. So the programmers at Milestar partnered with Lacey, who provided this footage, and they created this shoot 'em up game that they uh, changed the name from Armada to Mach 3 that really is rather striking. We'll obviously put that one in the show notes as well. But the gameplay, the targets and the player's ship and the projectiles and everything, or the player's jet, I should say, not ship, are all traditional sprites. So it's a traditional shooting game. Some of the missions are dogfighting missions where you're shooting at other planes in the sky. Others are bombing missions where you're shooting at targets on the ground. But all of that is traditional video game. Where the laser disc comes in is the footage of the landscapes that you're flying over. It creates these very realistic backgrounds that move also very realistically. They move like you're actually flying in a plane because it was footage that was actually shot from a flying plane. And so this juxtaposition actually worked pretty well, much better than Dragon's Lair, for instance. I'm looking at this one, too. It looks very realistic. 
I can see this being done as part of a home console. You can almost envision how, if I was actually flying a real plane in the 1980s and in 1990s, the kind of interactive HUDs for targets of an actual fighter. A lot of those use these kind of dash lines around targets, so on and so forth. Seems very much like I'm flying a real fighter jet if I was just bombing. You just remove the bite of the airplane itself, and I could be like, yeah, I'm bombing all this stuff. I'm flighting this plane and winning these missions and whatever else. Absolutely. It did very well at first. It actually became Gottlieb slash Milestar's only number one game on the earnings charts. Now, when I talk about the earnings charts, I'm talking about the surveys that the two main coin-op trade publications, Replay and Playmeter, would do, where they would survey operators and ask them which games were performing best in their locations. These are not nearly as scientifically accurate as even the Billboard music charts, because they generally only got a very small number of operators to respond. Because it was a cash-only business, operators would often be cagey about revealing their real results because they were often also hiding their real results from the federal government for tax reasons. These charts aren't 100% accurate as to specific earnings figures or sales figures or even necessarily completely accurate as to what was doing best at the time, but they're the best we have to gauge the industry. And Mach 3 is the only Milestar game that ever hit number one on the monthly earnings charts. They moved 6,000 units in pretty short order, which, again, in the world of later 1983, was actually very good. It seemed like everything was great. The problem was the same thing that happened to all the other Laserdisc games. The maintenance on them was a nightmare. This laser craze came about so quickly and so unexpectedly that... These were not machines that were designed to be arcade machines. They were not heavy-duty industrial devices that were made to run for long periods of time in adverse conditions or to even jump around the tracks as quickly. These were consumer-grade products that were designed to play a movie from start to finish. They did not stand up well to the rigors of the coin-op environment. Players are banging on these machines, shaking the machines. The players are in operation constantly, and like I said, they're jumping around from track to track instead of playing through these movies sequentially. They're also not sealed for the industrial environment. They get dust and dirt in them. That ruins the playback. The game is a service nightmare, and arcade operators start turning away from it and other Laserdisc games, but also specifically from Mach 3 because it's a service nightmare. Gottlieb keeps producing it longer than they should have. Milestar at this point, I should call them, I suppose. Even though it sells very well in the beginning, they keep producing it and then interest dries up and they're left with a huge amount of backstock. It's both an incredible success for the company and an incredible failure for the company all at the same time. They try to salvage it by creating a replacement game for the cabinets called Us Versus Them, which takes kind of the same basic idea but puts it into a sci-fi setting and mixes things up. It does some first-person missions as well as third-person missions. It also has some levels where you don't actually shoot at anything at all. You just have to dodge things. They also use live actors, 
which may well be a first for a video game. I'm not sure. I haven't done the research in depth. But if not first, certainly ahead of the general use of this kind of thing. They use live actors as part of telling the story of this thing as well. So, you know, true interactive movie in that sense. Yeah, definitely. I can see the live actors now. They got costumes. They got a simulated cockpit for you as the player. Mm -hmm. You, of course, are blacked out so that you can actually see who's flying it. (laughs) Right. So sort of like communicating back and forth and then off on your mission you go to destroy whatever. Exactly. So they try to salvage things by doing this us versus them, but by this time, it's over. I mean, the the Laserdisc craze is already gone, and so nobody's really interested in that game either. Things are just kind of in really bad shape at this point. Not entirely Gottlieb's fault, not entirely Milestar's fault even, because the whole industry is in the process of falling apart. Howard Rubin is left by this point. He goes off to start his own company in Kits, which, of course, we talked about how big Kits were in this period as the upright market was collapsing. Rubin's gone. The games just aren't doing well, and the market is not doing well. Management at Columbia is getting more involved, I think, because they're panicking. Their vision of this electronic entertainment company is falling down around them. It's not like they can get into the home now either, like they had planned to. The home's dead. Cubert does come into the home, but Cubert was licensed by Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers has a pretty big hit with Cubert, but Milestar doesn't. It's not their game. I mean, they get a royalty, but it's not their product. They gave those rights up in late 1982 before they had really started this bigger push to try to get into the home. There's not much of anywhere to go. They have a couple of other failures as well. Columbia gets really excited because they're creating kind of a Lord of the Rings knockoff to get in on this blockbuster era called Krull. They have Milestar do a game version of that because they see how well the Tron arcade game did, even did better than the uh, the movie itself. And so they're like, we're doing this big fantasy sci-fi epic, Kroll. So we're going to have a video game of Kroll, just like there was a video game of Tron. The Kroll movie is a dog, so the game doesn't do well either. They do a Qbert sequel called Qbert's Cubes that's kind of based on the popularity of the Rubik's Cube concept. Warren Davis doesn't do it. Another person does. You know, it just doesn't really interest people as well. Then, with the Columbia management getting more involved, there's other mistakes that kind of start getting made as well. The example here is that Frank Ballou, whom we've talked about before, he was at Atari. He was the head of sales at Atari. Then, when they got rid of him there, they did get rid of him. He ended up at Nintendo and was in charge of their coin-op division. They bring in Frank Ballou after Howard Rubin leaves as VP of product management. He's an arcade industry veteran, and he kind of knows how this business works, and he has good contacts with the Japanese companies. The story that Frank Ballou tells is that he lined up a deal to release the game Bomb Jack in the United States, which is a game by uh, Tekon, later known as Tecmo, that was a decent minor hit in the arcades in Japan and the United States, a platforming game. Baloo, before it was brought to the States, lined up a deal to bring it. He made a deal where there was a minimum quantity of 300 units, which meant that Milestar would be required to at least manufacture 300 units. As Baloo tells the story, he took that deal to Boyd Brown. You know, he was in charge, and Boyd Brown was like, yep, go for it. That's great. But then he went to Columbia 
because the Columbia people were getting more and more involved and were needing to approve this stuff as well, and went to Bob Smith, the executive vice president, and tells him that he's got this deal. Bob Smith's like, no, we're not doing that. Only 300 units? That's not enough of anything to be worth it. Frank's trying to explain. It's like, no, no, no. We have to buy a minimum of 300. It's not the maximum. It's just the minimum. According to Frank, he couldn't get this point across. And so Bob Smith turned down the deal and wouldn't let him license the game. Frank Ballou immediately left and went back to Nintendo. He was there for such a small period, he always leaves that off his resume because he saw that they were a disaster. Columbia was interfering. They didn't understand the business. They weren't producing hits in-house. They weren't able to license anything. The market was falling apart around them. Finally, on September 24th, 1984, Columbia announced that they were closing Milestar for good, effective September 30th, 1984. D. Gottlieb and Company, not that it was called that anymore, that it existed since 1927, was closed on September 30th, 1984. The rights to the games kind of got split up. So the pinball stuff still had some value to it, especially since now pinball was back on the rise again because video was falling, pinball was rising. Gil Pollock, who by this time had moved from head of the pinball division to VP of sales and marketing for the entire company, saw that there was still value there, and he purchased the pinball assets of Milestar and formed a new company called Premier that released pinball tables under the Gottlieb name. Gottlieb pinball tables continued, and this confuses people sometimes. It's not actually a continuation of the Gottlieb company. Premier Technology was the new company, and Gottlieb was the label because they bought the rights from Milestar. In 1985, the video game rights were bought by a company called JVW Corporation, which was created by Ron Waxman, our uh, VP of Engineering from Gottlieb Milestar, and two other former Milestar executives, John Von Leeson and William Jacobs. That's why it's JVW, because it's their last initials. So in 1985, they buy those rights. Columbia doesn't keep any of that. All of it is broken up between these other companies. Premier releases pinball tables into the 90s under the Gottlieb name before it too finally fails as pinball enters another downturn, up and down, up and down. Even though the Gottlieb name lives into the 90s, the Gottlieb company ends right there at the end of 1984. Not as long of a lifespan as you might have thought, but still a powerful one and one that had a lot of influence throughout the entire industry, not just in coin-op, but has some reverberation throughout the video game industry as well. Gottlieb was around for over 50 years, and it is a defining company in pinball, absolutely defining. It was the Cadillac of pinball, as we said. In video, obviously, it just had a very short life. They got in late because they were a traditional pinball company that didn't really see themselves as anything else. They missed the boat on a lot of the video revolution, the golden age of video games. They got in in time to have one big character hit in Qbert and one decent-sized Laserdisc hit in Mach 3. But by then, things were falling apart, and, I mean, the entire industry collapsed. It wasn't really indicative of Milestar itself doing anything wrong. Most of the companies failed in this time period. A lot of them managed to hold on because they had other ventures that they could fall back on. 
But all of the coin-op companies were hurt very badly. Milestar, they had corporate overlords that didn't care. I mean, for Coca-Cola, it was just a spec on the bottom line. I mean, it's not something that they were interested in saving. It was not something that they were very engaged with. And so when the market fell apart, it's like, okay, that's it. This market doesn't exist anymore. We're getting out of it. We're just going to close. That's exactly what they did. The legacy still lives on, and even if the legacy is more in pinball than it is in video, it's still a very interesting company and a very interesting chapter in video game history, which is why we took the time to cover it here in two parts, because that's how we roll when Alex gets talking. It does speak to all the detail and knowledge that goes into each and every episode. I guess that leaves... What do we talk about next time? Well, now that we've done something very old... I think it's only fitting that we do something very new, though when I say very new, I mean in the context of history, so it's still going to be a little old. But new for us, us who spend so much of our time in the 70s and 80s and 90s. 20 years ago, a little game called Grand Theft Auto 3 was released. It was kind of a big deal, and it kind of changed the way that... AAA video games were conceived of. We went in depth on it in our big blowout live stream of 100 most influential games and uh, spent some time talking about it. We haven't covered really Rockstar Games and the Grand Theft Auto series. I think that would be a good place to go next. The early games in the series, we're not going to go all through the series, but talk about kind of the road to Grand Theft Auto 3 and, and how the series began with the more primitive top-down games and how it evolved into this big open-world bonanza that is still incredibly huge and popular and, and influential 20 years after the release of 3, which was the big one. All right. I guess in that case, I'm going to have to start getting people together for a criminal enterprise. I guess we'll see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please give us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Getting the word out helps us grow. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 